Welcome to the Truman Charities Podcast. I am Jamie Truman, your host. For my Vanishing Fathers series, I spoke with Peter Grumble. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to grow up in a cult? At the age of two, Peter's father was introduced unknowingly to a cult that masqueraded as a church. Peter discusses the emotional and physical abuse he endured during his childhood, from hours of religious rants to sleeping on cardboard and being beaten with electric cords. How Peter and his siblings gave each other strength to get through the abuse and how school became his place to escape. Peter went through the unthinkable as a child, but was able to break away from the cult, attend Yale Law School, and most importantly, become a loving husband and father to his wife and three children. This is Peter's story. Peter, thanks so much for coming on to talk with me. You're welcome. Good to see you. Let's start out. Where and when were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic. I was born in uh, Mankato, Minnesota in 1972. I'm one of nine kids. I'm number two of nine. I went to high school in Mankato, went to college at the University of Minnesota undergrad, and then I moved east to go to law school at Yale. What was the dynamic between your mother and your father when you were a young child? So when I was two, when my older sister was four, and my dad, by all accounts, was um, kind of an all-Minnesota guy, two-sport D1 athlete. But when I was two, he was teaching at our high school, basketball coach, track coach, you name it. And in 1974, when I was two years old, he fell into a religious group, you know, make oil salesman types that convinced him to join a small kind of counter establishment uh, religious group that essentially turned into a cult. And it placed us in a situation where we were immediately like in a setting where our parents' authority uh, was undermined. The true north in a cult is always the crazy narcissist at the middle of it, the leader of it. And then my parents proceeded to have seven more kids. So we grew up essentially being constructively abandoned by our parents into this cult scenario. But it was that very difficult setting that we had to navigate childhood, setting that was extremely abusive, physically and emotionally, sort of unspeakable conditions against children. So that was the dynamic of my childhood. What are some of the rules of, I know each kind of cult has its own rules people follow. We would like to kind of dig a little bit more into exactly what were some of the rules that this cult had. And then also, since you were two, when your dad was introduced to this group, what was that like for you? Did you think that this was just normal? Could you feel there was any difference between your family and other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially, this was a small fundamentalist hardcore, you know, hellfire and brimstone Christian cult led by a madman, an abusive narcissist, psychopath, who broke down family dynamics quickly. There was this like very caustic, mercurial, iron-fisted micromanagement aspect to it. So these cult members who joined, including my parents, you know, they were adults. And I think they were looking for something as an alternative to whatever the mainstream options were. But it was a very black and white, rules-based, and very strict, harsh environment. I knew from the moment I had consciousness, whatever that age is, that this was wrong because it was physically very, very uncomfortable and and abusive. It's a special type of abandonment when you see your parents allowing things to happen to their kids, and they're in the room. 
right? That, that is the ultimate protector, right? The parent. So yes, my siblings and I, a band of, of nine, right? We all knew fundamentally that this was horrific and wrong, but eventually we survived and we got out and it became really a group of team-oriented people, leaders, resilient, incredibly strong, but it was especially painful for all of us that it was happening in the physical presence of our parents. And what type of relationship did you have as a young child with both your father and your mother? You know, under the circumstances, a good one. Whatever insanity was coming out of this cult situation, we did our best. I still have memories of when I was probably two, when my dad was more himself and was smiling and, and willing to be a cordial father. I think it was siblings and I all kind of banded up to survive. It became a very tenuous and mistrusting relationship with my dad because he was certainly the leader of, of this idea and this lifestyle. You had mentioned that when your parents were first introduced to this cult, they were a certain way, but then their personalities kind of changed the longer that they were involved within this organization. Tell me a little bit about that. I lived this progression from two to six years old when things are a little bit more kumbaya. We're Midwesterners, we're, you know, we're sincere and earnest, but as cults do, or at least this one did, it took on such horrific harshness and brutality in terms of the way children were treated and the adults were treated and mentally abused and physically abused. I remember pleading as a middle schooler uh, with my dad to, you know, look around him like he had lost his friends in the outside world. He was a well-liked person, athlete, like I said, beloved teacher, lost his job because he was evangelizing to his students. And the hardened position that he continued to take, you know, to double down on the, the cult, right, was also producing what I observed to be like a yielding on his part to this is the way it is. This is the way to get into heaven. And it became like seeing a grown man in this instance, just seed control of his life. So, you know, we really never felt like we had a protector, number one, a provider, someone who wouldn't listen to us either, because the siblings and I grew up, we kept asking them to take a look around. We were also in school, like we were in the public. And we were dressed differently, uh, which is fine, but we were gone on the weekends. We weren't allowed to play our schoolmates. It made our our personal lives really difficult at when we weren't sitting in long meetings at this cult or working on this cult compound. But we were, when we were back in Mankato, just trying to be kids. I wanted to touch on that a little bit about your upbringing when it came to school. What exactly was like your uniform that you had to wear? And then Tell me a little bit about the weekends. What were you doing? Well, I mean, I don't want to pick on another religious group, but kind of think of Amish or Mennonites. The boys had, we all had kind of buzz cuts and very basic kind of work clothes. No shorts allowed. College shirts, work pants. Think of like Dickies. And the girls had long hair and long dresses, very modest blouses, no exposed legs, you know, very basic, you know, non-worldly clothing. You still see religious groups who dress differently in there. It's noticeable, but this is a form of humiliation for sure. Not to break down sort of vanity, identity, and any kind of self-worth. And we lived in Minnesota, but the cult was located up right outside of a little town. It was called Shawano, S-H-A-W-A-N-O, outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. For the weekends, we would drive 
across the state of Wisconsin. We, uh, yeah. we lived in Minnesota, Mankato, Minnesota. We would leave on Friday after school and we would drive six or seven hours through the night and get there basically in the wee hours of Saturday morning. People sleep on, you know, on concrete floors and sleeping bags and in their cars. There are a couple members who had homes nearby. So people would, you know, sleep shoulder to shoulder in their basements. And then the, the weekend would start with a very early Saturday morning uh, meeting, which is like the religious meeting where we would all sit and hear these fiery rants from this absolute psychopath cult leader and sing songs and read from the Bible. Then the meeting would end after several hours and then the work would start. If you're not familiar at all with uh, rural Wisconsin, which I'm not even still, but it was a farm essentially that the cult leader had settled into and we as cult members and children really just engaged in construction, building out barns and buildings. And of course there were animals there's a lot of mud and dirt roads, a lot of steel work, concrete work, really at all hours, terribly unsafe and under horrific working conditions for everybody, for the adult men who are there and, and then us, the kids who were, you know, put to work on these, you know, round the clock jobs. Some people would be in the field. Some people would be on construction jobs, shoveling. We did a lot of shoveling, really low tech, awful labor. And, you know, we would eat you know, maybe one time, one meal a day, but we would work all through the day. And then there would be a night meeting on Saturday. And then some of us who were still working would just work into the wee hours of Sunday morning. And then Sunday started all over. Same thing. Long Sunday morning meeting, you know, the psychopathic rants of this horrible monster screaming at us, you know, singling out parents. His rants were just the, the darkness of a psychopath. And then back to work. And what would happen was come Sunday night, exhausted, beaten up quite literally sometimes because of the abuse, but also by the labor and, and the terrible living conditions, we would all pile into our cars. And I am certain, because I was witness to it, that these adults were very tired. They were exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, and would drive back to their homes. And many of them, many of them were like us, many hours away. So in Minnesota, southern Minnesota, Rochester and Mankato, you know, those areas had many families uh, living there. So we'd, you know, six, seven hours back into the night to get home at the wee hours of Monday morning and have to pull yourself out of bed and go to school. Um, it was just extraordinarily difficult and draining in every sense of the way routine. So I have a couple questions just listening to you day to day there. Could you give me an example of maybe some of the rants that the leader performed on Saturdays or Sundays. And then also, did they end up using any type of scare tactics or anything like that to keep you guys going all day? Because I would assume that's really tough to get these kids to be working around the clock. The rants and the sermons, of course, they morphed over the years because this narcissist with no education and, you know, really just a heavy dose of of psychotic behavior, depending on his mood, uh, would tear into us based on usually Old Testament scripture. We're all doomed. We're all going to hell. Basically terrorizing families for having worldly thoughts or wanting to be any, anywhere but in this cult. So it was a really an environment of fear. And the men and women who joined, I know them all and don't think they signed up for this. But of course, that brainwashing takes over and 
there were some kidnappings um, from worried parents to rescue their adult children out of this cult in the, I think it was in the 80s. I mean, it was covered by the Minneapolis news stations who carried a whole series on this of, of people, parents trying to rescue their brainwashed children from this cult. This was an environment of fear and then buying in, right? So, you know, unfortunately, my, my dad's one of those people who just went all in and just seeded his will and his children and his own life and his happiness and his meaning of life to this person, this, this psychopath who just frankly is just, just ends up destroying these families at their core and destroying childhoods along the way. So it was like a blistering rants of black and white, hellfire and brimstone were all doomed and various families were treated differently based on favoritism. Others were viciously attacked. You know, my family was one of those viciously attacked. I was physically viciously attacked my whole childhood there, but also our family was sort of picked on brutally because we, you know, had light in our eyes and we have good fire and we had will, our own will. Yeah, it sounds to me when you're talking, if you had any question or if you questioned anything or saw anything outside of it, then you were deemed bad and not a favorite. What was the dynamic with your parents going on during the weekends? Were you with them or did they separate the children from the parents? Yeah, we'd all sit in the same room divided by gender in these meetings. Mm -hmm. But there was no family clustering happening as soon as we got there. You're scattered. Essentially, the everyone's off doing what their role is to do in this communal situation. Although nothing felt communal because it was all pointed at this this monster at the center. What makes it really particularly acute too is that this abuse and this horrific conditions happened to us while we were on the same property, or in the same rooms, or within eyesight of our own parents and our parents' friends. So. It's the opposite of families being together. I mean, it's quite literally the dividing of families and, you know, basically daring a parent to stick up for one of their children. And I lived that. And then when you guys came back to your home and then Monday mornings you went back to school, what was that week like? Did you kind of go back into normal everyday activities? Sort of. You're still a kid in a cult with a bad haircut and, and really awful clothes, right? You missed out on your friendships, you know, uh, things that normal kids would do on weekends, you know, that my kids do and see their friends and spend time with them and play sports and all that stuff gone. But, you know, school became a sanctuary for me. I was where I could not get beat up and learning came very naturally. And I was a very hard, hard worker, too. So it was a sanctuary. But no, it's never normal. You live with like this deep dread in your body because of the abuse and because you're trapped, you know it's wrong. Like we all knew this was horrifically bad. Do you think because you guys lived so far away and you were able to see other families living a different type of life that helped you kind of see a different, like the light, as you say? And then also I wanted to know what was it like as a child on those Thursday or that Friday morning, every Friday morning when you know that you Mm. inevitably have to go back? So we lived in... Um, nice neighborhood in Mankato, Minnesota, right? Very neighborhoody, friendly. This is a Minnesota, you know, town. So yes, we saw how people lived. We'd sneak out over, over to our friend's house and watch TV or sneak down to 7-Eleven and get a candy bar. We kind of lived in both worlds. But we were never like purely in this prison, although I was taken from my family and parked on this compound for many consecutive summers. For the entire summer break, I was basically a prisoner. 
at the cult compound. I was a hostage, but my parents, you know, gave me up. I was demanded that I stay there. How old were you when that happened? I think it started when I was six. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, I slept on cardboard. I drank out of puddles. I survived as best I could. I was viciously cattle prodded and beaten with electric cords. I was tormented uh, by this man who who took a lot of joy in beating me up and locking me in dark rooms. It was a full hostage situation, but it was a man and a child. So you can imagine how sick that was. What was that like when you would come back home? How did you get through those transitions? I always feel like I missed the smell of my house. I missed sleeping in my own room with my, you know, we never had our own room because we had a big family, but it would just be like, you just feel like, okay, I'm back. But I never lost sight of the fact though, Jamie, that this was like, this was not right, right? And my, my parents allowed it to happen. And there's a lot there, you know, you're just in this twisted nightmare. And so you make the best of it, right? It's the siblings. My brothers and sisters, we became such a source of strength and humor and resourcefulness since we were real little. And we're still like that today. It's just, you just find a way to, to find hope. And then you keep going. When you were there at six and seven and eight, when you're so young, did you have a hard time understanding why your parents or why your mom didn't come to help you? It did change flavors over the years, but it was like, this is the way you get to heaven. This monster has this sort of beacon. So obedience and subservience was like the virtue. On Friday nights, I would wait for the moment I could get a glimpse of my mom and my siblings uh, when they would show up like everyone else on a Friday night. I would wait for those moments and try to catch a glimpse of her or see her. It's all twisted by religion. I mean, this fanatic religion caused parents to abandon their children in broad daylight in front of them. I guess I can map it only back to what that brainwashing must have been for them. What was that like when you were coming towards the end of high school? How did you see your future? Did you plan to have any type of relationship with your parents at the time? What was that like? Yeah, you know, you end up reaching kind of this crazy equilibrium with parents who are putting you through this horrific experience, right? I had done very well in school, so I was able to get college scholarships and I went to the University of Minnesota on a full-ride academic scholarship, but I wanted specifically to really stay there. And of course, I wanted to run away and leave, but you know, I was staying close to my siblings. Uh, my college experience was very serious because I was still going on weekends. Was, so you still yeah. continued through the weekends in college as well? Yeah, you know, you're still kind of under that spell. There's a lot of fear. And I was being treated better because I was physically bigger and my abusers, you know, all being cowards and uh, will not go after someone that could resist them. And my physical life was better in the sense that I was not getting these horrible things be set upon me physically. And I got to see my siblings, right? My brothers and sisters are younger than me, except for my older one. I needed to be around them. I just felt we had this such a bond and It really wasn't until after my college years when I moved to the East Coast that I was able to make that break. And during these years, what was your, because it seems as if, you know, a lot of this has to do with this really amazing bond that you share with your siblings and you staying Mm -hmm. even in college is just, you know, your siblings are still there. It was something that you felt you needed to continue with them. What about your relationship with your father at the time? Or your mother? 
Well, they're, again, physically present. My dad went through a series of just, I'm sure it's a well-worn script, lost his job, alienated himself from his own parents, and my mom did the same thing. So you just end up calcifying this little group, you know, it's us against the world. But, you know, really just had abandoned the idea of I would ever respect him. He wasn't coming to help me. He wasn't protecting us. He wasn't making good decisions, even for, like, even by, like, any standard to, like, to have a family of nine kids that is happy or safe or parented. He just became kind of like this lifeless, pathetic person in our house that we all, frankly, it's all, it's very disappointing, right? Because you want to have that, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to have a father figure, you know, and from what I've learned about what, who he was before called, sounds like he would have been like that, you know, without kind of losing it in terms of this horrific thing that, that this whole group became. As an adult, looking back, why do you think your father was susceptible to this sort of brainwashing? And it was brainwashing. We can't put our finger on it. In fact, again, this this is all before I had sort of any consciousness of my own, but I have learned that he was, like I said, he was was an athlete. He was a beloved high school teacher. He was an outdoorsman. He had a lot of friends and an interest outside of um, the home, like, you know, outdoors. Kind of like all-American, like, Minnesota guy. And I don't think he ever even wanted to be part of a church or a religion. But something spooked him. Maybe this absolute despicable nightmare of a monster who convinced him pulled on something, whether it was an insecurity about his salvation, or I don't even even know the narrative or the, the words that were used. I don't really know. From listening to you and you're telling your story, it seems as if you having this large family and having all of these siblings was extremely helpful for you to get through it because you all seem to lean on each other. So I want to know, first off, you have to tell me the line of girls to boys with these nine. And then tell me, what was it like with that many siblings going through this all together? You don't hear that very often of anybody... I'm one of six, and people think that's a lot. Nine is is yeah. a whole different level. Yeah. <laughs> it is, and uh, you know, I get the same questions. I'm sure you do. Like, oh, are you Catholic? Are you Mormon? And like, I have another category for you to explain. No, about five to four girls win. They always do, right, Jamie? So, yeah, five sisters and three brothers. You know, I'm a student of history. You read about communities under siege and the, the family dynamics of children finding a way to play in a war zone, you know, and we found joy with each other. We found strength with each other. There was a lot of improv comedy happening. We all learned how to cook at a young age, run the house. I mean, the house basically ran itself uh, because of us. I mean, frankly, because of the leadership probably of um, some of my sisters, but we all had very special roles in the family with each other. We were sympathetic to my mom along the way because I feel like she was kind of along for this this ride that she never signed up for. Um, and it at the time, they just didn't have the strength or the means to do anything about that. But that story ends well, because all of us are out. All siblings are we're out. We're thriving professionals. And my mom is too. And was there something that specifically happened that made her kind of open her eyes to, oh my gosh, this isn't something that I want to be a part of anymore? Yeah, you know, I think there are two things that work that called, had sort of calcified into just a very caustic, abusive environment. So the conditions just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I'm certain that contributed to, you know, folks leaving, including my mom. Also, we were 
you know, her children were adult children who had entered, you know, life after death. And, you know, we had contact with her. And I think that she saw that, you know, she really needed to be with her family. And that was a, a wonderful, I think, influence as well. In fact, my sisters give them all the credit, really did the whole thing. Uh, went and picked her up, gave her a soft landing back in their arms and our arms. And um, she got to be reunited with her mother, our grandmother. So it was a combination of just these deteriorating conditions. I think, um, of course, her adult children. And she's thriving, basking in the glow of her many grandchildren. And it just fills my heart. I mean, of course, you have to get through the talking it through. Like, wow, what was all that? You know, but to see her living her years, thriving, and gosh, think about how many kids she has. And she's got more grand. I couldn't tell you how many grandkids she has, but I should know that. But I've got three for her. So we're all out. And, you know, I think every one of uh, my siblings has their own version of this because we all had to leave under our own sort of personal timing. We've always encircled you know, this group of, of brothers and sisters, each other in that type of care and outreach for each other. And we still do. We're a highly vocal and passionate group, and uh, we're very, very, very close still. Yeah, I can't imagine you guys for family holidays. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a big Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner, that's for sure. But it ends in a way that just gives me kind of this rock hard foundation who I want to be and what kind of father I want to be. So what was that transition like from when you had graduated from the University of Minnesota and then you said that you moved out east? What was that like? Because you have been doing this your entire life. So tell me a little bit about that. I moved because I got into a great law school um, and I, I wanted to study law. I went to Harvard and law school on the same day, actually. And that was really exciting for me. I thought that was kind of my cue, right? That was my sign. So I chose um, to go to Yale Law School. And I moved out. I just started class and and uh, was a law student. And um, again, by then I'd been in college. It had been sort of, probably looked more mainstream. I was wearing normal stuff. I certainly, in my mind, I had left this place. But there was never any kind of dis- cognitive dissonance about what am I doing, like, you know, emotionally or belief-wise. And it, that, that represented a, like a quite literally a physical separation from, also from my crew though. Like I missed my siblings and some of them were still in, some were, some were, you know, already, meant, you know, getting out and, and embarking on their journeys. So I did have, we had a hard time. We kind of banded together about trying to be in contact with the, some of the ones who were still in. You know, they were, they were kids, right? That was tough, but going to law school out east just really was that, severing event. And so two questions. I want to know why law? Why did you decide to go that route? And then also, what were your relationships like? Honestly, in retrospect, I don't practice law now. I did practice at very prestigious law firms and then embarked on a business career uh, where I am now. I also teach at Georgetown Law School, so I'm in contact with that, with education, which I'd love to do. Honestly, I was a good writer. I loved to read. I mean, I was a voracious reader um, as a kid because we didn't have television or radio or, you know, we had reading and each other and, and art and music as siblings. I have a whole side of me academically that really is drawn towards math, physics in particular. I thought about maybe studying for medicine, um, but ended up just doing really well in in my major and got into great law schools. And I didn't really think that this was going to be like the thing I did for the rest of my life. These are like small little steps, you know, forward. It, I nailed it and it worked out and tell everyone who's listening, like, 
in my classes, if they're still listening in my classes or, you know, it's no single career is, is your landing spot. Right. Uh, but it was the path I chose just to climb out of that madness. What yeah. were your relationships like? Because I could see that that could be a little bit difficult, friends-wise or romantic relationships, any type of relationships you're having with other people. Yeah. Because you're coming from this situation that is very kind of unheard of. A very small percentage of people go through this. And I would think that it might yeah. be somewhat of a difficult, and you tell me, experience for people to understand kind of what you've been through and why you think certain ways. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about that. You're, you're kind of living two lives, right? You're living one life in the public, right? Uh, and trying to be a kid, trying to fit in, having friendships, relationships. But then you have the secret, right? And you have this this, this this horrible part of your life that you're you feel embarrassed about, right? I mean, I wouldn't say it was outwardly shameful because I don't think we felt shame, but it's like this awful thing that we knew we had to live with. So the friendships, I think, were meaningful. I mean, I still have friends right now who I've met in seventh grade, right? I'm still myself and I can, you know, I'm an empathetic person. Relatability and connectivity are really precious to me. Truly, the friendships I had, I think I was trying to fit in, like any other middle schooler. I don't think my judgment in relationships was certainly clouded or duplicitous. Does that make sense? But living with this, like the two worlds thing, is tough. I mean, it's tough to reconcile that. But people are curious. People want to know, like, where were you last weekend? Or, we know your family's a little, you know, of course it was known in my hometown that you know, your family's different. You know, but nobody really stepped on our toes. I mean, there were a lot of families that probably fit a different profile, but it did add some complexity to the way that we engage with people. You couldn't really have like weekend relationships or long relationships. College was much easier because it was like a fresh slate for me. And, you know, I was really hyper-focused on my schoolwork. I, you know, wanted to do well so I could take that next step that I described. But no, it, it's certainly like having to reconcile all that, like post-trauma has been, a, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, but it certainly was there and I had to deal with it. You know, I did want to ask you a little bit about how you met your wife and what that was like getting married because you grew up looking at your parents and all of these other families, what values are you taking from them or, or what do you want right. to do differently? Tell me a little bit about that. I think I always had a very decent sort of social, emotional IQ, um, even through all this, but certainly post-cult, I was able to I mean, forge really great, great friendships. I'm still some of my closest couple, couple very close friends who I grew up with in the cult, but I'm sure there's impact, of course, uh, from trauma. But, you know, I always yearned to be a father. I felt like I was a big brother, sort of sometimes father to my really young siblings, but I'm a giver, I'm a helper, I'm an empath. So when I met my wife, you know, like other relationships I had, you know, along the way, nothing fell out of the ordinary or forced. We were set up in Washington, D.C. when I came to Washington to practice law. My now wife was a was just graduating from GW University, and we were set up through mutual friends. That's why we came together. And then, what was it like for you, kind of navigating marriage, not having parents or people around you to look at and use them as sort of someone to say, you know, this is what a marriage is. This is how I like to see my marriage. Or was there somebody even growing up that you did see that you thought, you know, what that is the type of marriage that I'd like to have? No, there was not a single, I mean, I probably looked at friends, 
whose mm-hmm. parents, you know, were not non-cult people who I thought, gosh, I wish I had a dad who patted me on the head or smiled at me. Yeah, no, I was still emerging from this situation. And in fact, at our wedding, not all my siblings were there because they weren't out yet. My mom wasn't there because she was not out yet. So my wife's from a very traditional, awesome family. She's got one sibling and um, absolutely lovely parents. So, you know, she had to deal with a whole box of crazy when it came to, to this developing story. So I was walked down the aisle by two sisters and my, my, my one brother. But again, it was a work in progress. So you've gotten out and you've accomplished mm-hmm. so many great things. But what was that moment when you found out yourself that you were going to be a father? Oh, my gosh. It was like my life starting over. Almost quite literally. And I'll get into that a little bit. But something just, I mean, maybe this is instinctual to everyone. But for me personally, I was craving fatherhood. Probably because I was craving childhood. And to be a father was, to me, my way of, of breaking a cycle and starting over. And it was just the most joyful, like, moving thing. It still is fatherhood for me. Because I knew this massive thing I could break. The other thing I didn't want to be, right? And so I had no role model, right? I, all the fathers around me were broken people who allowed their families to be in harm's way, their children to be harmed. And so fatherhood to me was a very profound thing that I could just cut across that circle. And what are some of the values that you wanted to instill in your children that you did not get as a child? I think number one, uh, safety. Okay, like just the unconditional, people say unconditional love. What is that? To me, it's it's safety, it's security, it's giving them confidence to ask questions, to make mistakes. All three of my kids are very kind, they're empathetic, they're conversational, they're safe. I mean, it sounds so basic, but we're a family of curiosity, asking questions, being kind to everyone. And I've got already have a list of stories that bring tears to my eyes about seeing my children engage with adults across the spectrum, the same way they would talk to you and talk to me. It is interesting listening to you and and you have mentioned the word safety several times. So that seems to be a really big moving force of as a father, what you want to provide for your children, which is incredible. And what has it been like since you had so much of just the you know, quote unquote, normal childhood activities taken away from you. So what's it been like living through your children's childhood with them and seeing them enjoy those type of activities that you were never able to be involved in? So there's two sides to that. One is, yes, they're living a life of, um, and I'll go back to safety for a second. It's like this emotional safety too. Like they can, you know, be curious. Make a mistake. Let's talk about it. Like, uh, let's learn how to cook. Like, just being intellectually safe, emotionally safe, seeing them lead this life, right? And I, coming from the depths of trauma and poverty and the unspeakable physical conditions and mental conditions, to provide this life for my my kids is it's a, every second of the day. I'm mindful and grateful for seeing this happen and seeing them experience. A childhood, and it's my it's my best version of a good childhood for them. I'm sure I've got you know blind spots or or frailties in the way I'm a father, but I'm doing my best, you know, and I, I'm watching them have this uh, childhood that I really would have craved. The other side to that, Jamie, is 
the trauma side. Just in my rear view mirror now, but watching my son, I have two sons and a daughter. When my oldest son was like four years old, I was watching him um, in the backyard and, and like just complete awe of something he was doing, probably outside, you know, holding a butterfly or something. But it almost took my breath away, quite literally, when I looked at him and I remember exactly what I was going through when I was four, same age. And it, I almost stopped breathing because I almost had to reach, it almost re-traumatized me to see like my boyhood in their boyhood and to know, gosh, how far this is from what I went through. As a father, I was, I was thinking to myself, how could someone put a four-year-old, in this instance, my four-year-old boy, a four-year-old boy into the harm that I was placed? And is your father still involved in that organization? Hardly no. Yeah. I haven't had contact with him since uh, sometime in the late 90s. If you were to speak to your father today, what do you think you would say to him? Or how would you feel about seeing him? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, there's no tension or conflict in me about it. I think I have just come to peace with it. It's a, it's really sad. It's a really tragic life to have this wonderful family and throw it away. It's so pathetic. Just so, just so pathetic. People wish they could have children sometimes and can't, you know, and wish they could have freedom and they can't. And here, this person threw it all away and actually kind of put us through these decades of absolute hell. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really have anything to say to him. Do you feel that the way that you brought up made you, as a parent, do you think that you were more protective or extra cautious of people around them and what they were doing? Do you think that had any effect on that? Yeah, maybe. I have thought of it that way. You know, I, I'm probably the easy of it. I'm the, the more laid back of the two parents, I think, you know, more permissive. That's a great question. I think that really enjoying how unstructured parenthood is at times, but also being like, you know, pretty resolute, pretty decisive. And, you know, I have really good ideas, I think, uh, maybe some bad ideas, but pretty resolute about, you know, helping guide the kids and, and mostly just towards, towards character stuff. Maybe like the, the education will come and they're getting great educations. It's the most, most important thing in my house. And they're tremendous athletes, all three of them. But being able to see how impactful we are as parents, they're not always acting like they're listening, but they're listening. Let them make mistakes, you know. I mean, it's only half joking. Like, seriously, go be a kid. Like, go, I got your back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do say that a lot with people when we're talking about parenting. And it's just they, they pretend like they're not listening, but they are definitely watching. They may not be they're, listening that much, but they are watching everything that you do. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That is for sure. And what would your advice be to any young men out there that are struggling with either an absentee father or like yourself, like a very complicated relationship with their father? I found sanctuary in my school and those sort of proxies for parents, um, if you will. Really, I think for boys, we're not encouraged to speak up. Uh, maybe girls too. I, I'll just speak for me. I didn't feel like I could. It's kind of hard to ask for a mentor, but I would say the number one thing to do is find a mentor and just ask. I mean, people do want to help. I've been that person that's been asked to help. And I sort of live my life in, you know, kindness is free, right? So 
a young man who is struggling with um, in a fatherhood or lack of fatherhood dynamics um, or challenging dynamics, think about who in their lives they could go ask for help. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a high school teacher. Maybe it's a high school you know, administrator. Maybe it's a neighbor. And people are good by nature, in my opinion. People want to help. I just got the wrong side of that for a long time. But ask around. Ask for help. Ask for advice. Ask for mentorship. Ask for ideas. Looking back on your childhood, was there anybody, like you mentioned, was there anyone that you looked up to? My teachers, admittedly, they were sympathetic towards our situation. They didn't probably know all the gory details, the graphic nature of everything, but there was sympathy amongst my teachers, all the way to elementary school, middle school, high school. And then, for, and remember, my dad used to teach at my high school. So my high school teachers were his contemporaries who were like, where is that guy? Like, he's gone deep end. He's, and so as his kids, we had especially kind of warm harbor with them. And I can, I won't name them by names, but there are six or eight teachers who were friends with my dad before he went down that path. So yeah, it was a very safe place to be, not only school because it's a sanctuary, because you're, you have air conditioning and you get to have lunch, uh, but because there were people there who were kind. I was nudged along to, you know, by many of these teachers to hang in there. And before I let you go, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think, you know, so much know? The one thing that I really have found the power of, uh, uh, Jamie, is in really the mindful, intentional contact I have with myself, right? I mean, so this the whole journey was, you know, survival, challenges, challenges, challenges. But even as an adult in the business world, as a father, being intentional and mindful uh, with what, what I want to do, what are my goals? And then not even like financial or business goals, just things that are on my plate to think about. I'm sure that you have heard of a version of this, but I'm very intentional and mindful about writing every season. It could be a year, it could be six months, it could be two years of the things that are on my mind, the things, the relationships I want to reconcile or things I want to accomplish, you know, accomplish as a person, either me or, or as a father or as a spouse. It's remarkable the resounding things that happen when you visualize them, right? And then you put them down to paper. This is my experience. This is what I do. And then you read them out loud and they become sort of thoughts and chemicals in your body and they come to, they come to pass. I'm an optimist. I also am very encouraged by our ability to shape our environments and our futures by dreaming it. I have a stack of memos this long. So it's been the first one I, I made things that I'm sort of intentional and thinking about. And they change. It's just like a, it's a snapshot in time, right? How long have you been practicing this? Well, I think literally writing memos myself since probably 2001. But before then, uh, the mindfulness, of course, was really a fundamental part of how I, I dragged myself through what I did. So just the gratitude and the intentionality of how I, how I approach my life and those around me is, is something that is, to me, it's timeless. And it's, it all comes back to the individual, the strength of the individual uh, and those, and again, the community and, and the family around them. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. And it's really an inspirational story of what you've been through and what you've been able to accomplish and what a wonderful father you've been able to become and teach your kids some really incredible values that unfortunately your father did not instill in you. But I do have to ask you on a, on a lighter note, do your kids, yeah. do they know all of their cousins' names or is it too many? 
Do they forget that? No, they, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. They know them all because my three brothers live in this area. So we get okay. to see their kids. And then my my sisters all kind of end up gravitating back towards the Midwest. But yeah, we know all their names. Although Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner is going to be pretty, pretty darn big. That sounds like a lot of fun, though. Big families are it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you again yeah, so much. And I will talk okay. to you soon. All right. Thanks, Jamie. If you enjoyed this episode in our Vanishing Father series, please make sure to rate or review this podcast. The reviews really do count. If you'd like to hear more about the statistics and further understand the impact on fathers in society, please purchase our book, Vanishing Fathers, A Ripple Effect on Tomorrow's Generation. All proceeds from the book will directly go to charities that are helping at-risk youths. And if you'd like to follow us online, go to our website, trumancharities.com, Facebook, at Truman Charities, Instagram, Jamie underscore Truman Charities, and you can follow me on LinkedIn at Jamie Truman. Thank you so much for listening to our Vanishing Father series, and please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any further episodes.